0: so probably about next monday or this coming monday rather i'm going to introduce a practice that should be uh for many people will we'll kind of evolve organically uh, will be on organic evolution out of what we're do- out of what we are doing already, and it's a very simple practice in a lot of ways, and just a just kind of next step a little bit, very simple, very non-conceptual, uh, probably on Monday. Tomorrow night, uh, probably in the evening, keep your eyes peeled by the way for the teaching times, tomorrow night, is that on? Yes. It, okay, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it was just making <laughs> funny noises, that's all. Um, Me or machine? The machine, uh, the, the machine. <laughs> <laughs> the machine. <laughs> Tomorrow night, I'm going to uh, introduce what for many people will feel like quite an alien practice that involves quite a lot of conceptuality, quite a lot of thinking, and is will feel a, a little bit complicated. Padding that on either side, tonight I want to talk about the general relationship and attitude to practice, okay, in general. And the, the night after the night after tomorrow night's talk, um, talk about our relationship with conceptuality. It was actually, I think, is quite, quite key. A relationship to knowing and not knowing and what that means to us as human beings. So, I'm just kind of partly saying that because I was debating a lot amongst, you know, amongst myself, within myself, Uh, (laughs) um, it would be ideal if I could give kind of the next three talks all in one go uh, <coughs> and just kind of... So I hope that you can bear in mind tonight's talk uh, for the next while, actually f- until the end of the retreat, because a lot of what what I will say is, is relevant in terms of attitude for, for the rest of the retreat. Um, and similarly, as I'm giving tomorrow night's talk, I would wish that you could hear the, the one following, but anyway... This is the order I've come to. Okay, so meeting with a lot of people, uh, a lot of practitioners, what's very clear to me is that there are a lot of different personalities. A lot of different personalities in terms of how people relate to practice. It's very clear. There's, there's a wide range in terms of what people's attitudes and their, their relationship with practice is. So how am I, how are you relating to this whole thing, this whole endeavor, not just formal sitting practice, but the whole, the whole thing, the whole, the whole show, particularly how, what I want to explore tonight and in, in the other talk, particularly how am I relating to effort, mm-hmm. okay, big one, how am I relating to effort, how am I relating to the notion of goals, okay, How am I relating to the notion of the path, or a path? How am I relating to learning new approaches in practice? How am I relating to not understanding something? If, in this case, John or I say something, or another teacher, or you read something that you don't understand, what's the relationship with not understanding? What's the relationship with the whole concept and notion and sort of feeling of doing stuff in practice as opposed to not doing stuff in practice. And then in that other talk, what's the whole relationship with concepts and with knowing and with not knowing? So quite a lot, but I just kind of want to weave this all in. I I actually think this is all really, really crucial stuff. It's crucial to uh, be aware of how we're approaching all this stuff. And I'm not. I'm not going to land actually in this talk say it has to be like this or it has to be like that. It's more that the questioning and the consciousness is alive. That one's actually aware of what one's bringing in terms of one's predispositions, predecisions, etc. To all this. So, given all that and that, that range of, of questions that I just threw out there, just what is my general tendency? What What are the patterns that I tend to see myself? Uh, falling into with with these things? And what is the tendency in this moment, or what is the relationship with those things in this moment? Because that will change. Uh, You know, all this is impermanent. It changes from time to time, though I might recognize a general tendency with all this. So just, I've already thrown this out there, but just one distinction, for example, is am I, are you, Seeing, you know, are you regularly in contact with the sense of the beauty and the nobility of what you're doing? You know, I, I see that as really, really important because the opposite is a sense of self criticism and how easily that creeps into practice or, or is thrust into, thrust itself into practice, or a sense of impatience. Now that's just one, one um, domain. So this whole this whole area of effort. I mean, I, I really feel that a wise relationship with effort is absolutely crucial for the development of practice. It's absolutely crucial that we've explore. We are exploring this. What what is a wise and a healthy and a helpful relationship to effort and efforting? So Shantideva, one of the great uh, great Mahayana teachers, and I think. 8th century, 8th or 9th century. He said, right effort, or wise effort, has actually four components. And we can talk about uh, the necessity of aspiration. So aspiration has to be there to make the effort kind of helpful and wise and healthy. Uh, Meaning... I have a sense of where I want to go. I have a sense of direction with this. Okay. There is something that I'm aspiring to, and I'm at least reasonably clear what that is. The second one is confidence. That I'm actually... Uh, the goals that I have are realistic. They're realistic for me. This is really important. So people, again, tend to fall into two spectrums. Either setting themselves or or kind of... Going along with a completely unrealistic notion of goal, you know, a completely unrealistic. It's not even in the ballpark of what's possible. And then, and then after a little while, you just run out of steam. It just completely runs out of steam. Or, and what's more common to the insight meditation tradition, is not not enough sense of confidence that one can actually uh, aspire high, you know, to a high level of. Um, Awakening or realization or whatever, and that, that that's actually something realistic. That's actually so. Again, uh, dharma scenes are tend to be one way or another. Insight meditation, oftentimes people are not actually aspiring. Uh, it's almost like we don't believe we can. So, am I? Is there a sense of possibility that I can actually do this? Whatever, wherever I've set this. For, uh, the third one that Shanti Deva points to is. Very interesting as well. Joy. That joy has to be a part of of wise and helpful effort. Joy. There's a sense of joyfulness in the effort. I'll I'll talk more about these during the talk. And the last one is rest. Knowing when to rest. Knowing how to... That means actually stopping practice at times, but it also means knowing how to take your foot off the gas pedal, off the the, um, accelerator pedal, and just have it be more easeful in the moment. So on this retreat so far, far I've, I've already said this, but I'll say, I'm going to say it again, we're not, I hope, just um, doing our regular sort of being, if this is what we do, just being with experience, just being mindful, just being present. Uh, we want to play and experiment and find new ways of working, new, new ways of looking and seeing and working in practice. And then, as I've said at, at least once, if not twice, uh, then we want to consolidate those ways of working. So they really become like skills and tools that we, we are developing. We feel that development. And in so doing, we feel them begin to unfold and deepen. We, we feel that process going on. So In relation to what we've done so far, where are we going to get this confidence from? Okay, We get it from a number of pieces. But one is that it actually needs to make sense to us why we're doing what we're doing. In other words, so far we've introduced the three characteristics practice. That actually needs to make sense. Why, why are we doing this? I mean, why not just hang out and be with things as they are? It needs to make sense why we're actually doing this. Uh, I'll come back to that. And the second one, where second place that confidence comes from, is actually feeling, even just a little bit, a sense of... I'm going to use the word... Progress sense of progress, sense of deepening, a sense of uh, growing subtlety, you could say, so again, so far, in what we've done, why why are we doing this three characteristic practice? Well, part of what I want you to do very much is to notice what happens when you do it, okay, notice what happens when you do it. And do you notice that when, when you contemplate in this way, when it feels like it's going well, that suffering gets less, even a little bit? <laughs> yeah? Good. Okay, you, we want to notice that. that needs to, we want to make that really clear. This is a way of looking that brings uh, a decrease in suffering, Okay. Do you also notice, and we've we've actually talked about this, do you also notice that when you contemplate in this way, the sense of self gets quieter, gets more light, more refined? Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Great. Do you also notice that when those two things happen, that it feeds back on itself and then it's easier to see the three characteristics? Yep. yeah so there's there 's a, there's a, a a natural kind of what, what do you call it, a positive feedback loop or something later and quite soon actually we 'll talk about other things that are coming out of this very practice so i 'm going to throw this out now. Uh, Keep paying attention to what happens when you contemplate three characteristics, because there's other stuff that happens that's actually very significant in terms of the practice unfolding and understanding emptiness and, and the realization of emptiness. I'm not going to go into it now, but just to say, keep. we want to be really interested. When I do this, what's the feeling? What happens? What happens to experience? What happens to the sense of things? Um... So, in terms of the second aspect that gives me confidence, a sense of progress, hunting for a a different word, but let's actually use that. A sense of progress. When I talked about the practice of, say, anatta, I talked about a person usually, almost without exception, slowly expanding their range of what they could disidentify with. Yeah? Do you remember saying that? So that's actually important, because if I... T- I'm just repeating what I've said before, but if I try and disidentify with everything all in one go, it, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Not, it's very, very unlikely that a person would be able to do that. I might also have lots of blind spots of things that I'm still identifying with without realizing it. So this sense of just... Um, consciously expanding the range of what I'm disidentifying with if I'm doing the anatta practice. That gives me a sense of progress. Oh, this much I can do, and then, you know, two days later, or a week later, or whatever it is, a month later, I can do this much. And and that, that's important. And if you're doing the practice that's uh, relaxing the relationship with the experience, the the push, the pull, the aversion, the, the clinging, I'll also put this out there. Do you notice that when, when one lets go, a calming can sometimes come into the, into the inner environment? Yeah? Good. And in that calming, it can sometimes enable the consciousness to pick up on more subtle levels of clinging, of aversion and, and uh, grasping. Do you notice that? Yeah. Uh, and then there's the possibility of letting that go. So you get a sense how the practice can actually progress. And that gives confidence. Okay? That gives confidence. So what, you know, what is the relationship to all this? It's quite I think it's quite an important question. I remember, you know, just in terms of learning new approaches. I remember learning to drive when I was a teenager and I postponed it for um I, think I was just having a teenage, uh prolonged teenage crisis, so I postponed learning to drive. And when I came to it and all my friends could drive, I was actually really quite overwhelmed by it. It felt like really challenging to learn to drive. Um, but now, uh, just don't think about it. You know, it's just it's completely effortless driving, and can be completely having a conversation or listening to music or something else. You know. So, what's the relationship to all this? Is it overwhelm, um, or am I the other extreme, kind of rushing through the practices? So sometimes that's my tendency in, in the Dharma setting is actually to rush through, to be impatient. Do I get bored easily? Um, am I taking the time to let a practice really develop uh, in, in these ways, or, and unfortunately, one sees this quite a lot in in uh, in some some circles, am I just doing the same old thing year in year out in my practice, same old thing, same thing that I learnt maybe on the first couple of retreats, just about being present, etc. I'm just carrying that same old thing, and. In a way, underneath that and supporting that is a kind of not really expecting anything from practice. I don't really expect any, anything, any big deal, any big experience, any, any, anything. So, with all that, to, as, as I've been saying, just to notice where am I leaning? Typically, where do I lean with it? What's my tendency? So I already said, we're going to throw out a lot of practice, partly, as I said, this talk, you'll hear it where you are now, in terms of what we've done. You'll also hear it in the mood you are now, and in the relationship you are this evening with practice. You'll notice all these changes, but hopefully you can take at least carry at least some of what I'm saying tonight through the rest of the weeks here, because it will come up, it will definitely come up. We'll be offering a lot of practices, and as I said in the opening talk, People are just going to choose one or two, maybe three. you know. And you can do it. You can do it. So what about this word progress? Uh, which is, and sometimes it's a kind of taboo word in, in meditation circles. It's almost like we can't talk about that. We can't even mention the idea that it, it may uh, be around. Again, different, different spiritual traditions relate very, very differently to this. But I wonder, you know, without a certain sense of direction, of intentness. So doing these practices, there's a real kind of intentness. We're clear about what we're trying to do. We're clear and specific and sustained in what we're trying to do. We're sustaining trying to do a certain thing in a a very specific and intent way, uh, a a certain approach or a certain line of inquiry. And I, I, I wonder... If progress is really possible without that, without that sustained intentness uh, of, of application, so it's not just—I don't think—that we let go. We kind of want to jettison the word progress, oftentimes because it's painful. It tr- it, it pushes all the buttons of potential potential um, tightness, potential self-judgment, etc. And it's it's a painful notion to come into relationship with oftentimes for people in terms of practice, but if I just let it go, maybe I'm losing something else, maybe I'm losing quite a lot else. Is it possible to hold on to a sense of progress, a notion of progress, a relationship with that, but without the suffering? And and the answer is yes, it's totally possible. It's really about how how can we learn to do that? So... Is it even good, is it even helpful never to expect anything from practice? Now, we as teachers, and oftentimes insight meditation teachers, we put this out quite a lot. Don't expect anything, let go of expectations, you know, etc. And that's good, that's actually really helpful. But, like everything, it has a downside, it has a potential pitfall. And one of the potential pitfalls is that people will expect too little from practice. Expect too little. So this is a question to ask myself, am I actually expecting too little from practice? So sometimes in teachings and in talks or readings or you're listening to a Dharma talk on CD or tape or whatever, and we hear something, we hear the teacher talk about, or in here or whatever, another retreat, we hear the teacher talk about uh, an insight or a realization or a level of practice that's actually beyond where we are. To me, that's a very interesting point. It's a very interesting point in teaching when I know that I'm speaking a little bit beyond or a lot beyond where most people are in the room. But it's a very interesting uh, point for the listener. It's extremely interesting. What happens to the heart and the mind at that point? What happens? What's the relate? Now, this will differ from time to time, of course, but is there a general tendency here? And even in the moments, in the specific moments when you're hearing something, I don't get it, or well, I'm really not there, what happens here? What happens to the heart? What happens to the mind? So easy for that to get just, you know, rooted straight away into the inner critic. Oh, I'm rubbish. I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. Or to look at our sense of where we are in practice and just dismiss that. It's just, it's just not good enough. And and we kind of forget where we are, and we, we sort of launch ourselves into some fantasy about the future. Or a sense of impatience with where we are. Or a sense sometimes of just giving up, like it's all pointless or overwhelmed. Of course, it can have beautiful, you know, it's not all negative. A person can be inspired, can uh, appreciate the clarity of a sense of direction or a bit of a roadmap. Um, there can be joy hearing about the potentials. It could be just curiosity. So all, all this can be there. But the, the thing, again, that I want to highlight is, am I aware of it in that moment? Because oftentimes it's a very potent moment for people, a very potent moment uh, when that happens. So generally speaking, on our path, not just in formal meditation, but just our path in our life, is it possible to keep our... Uh, again, I'll use the words that some people won't like them, spiritual hunger, our our thirsting for understanding, our thirsting for depth, our longing, our yearning, uh, or our just just wanting to know, our desire, our desire to understand and to be free. Can we keep that, but with a sense of evenness, with a sense of steadiness uh, flowing through the practice, with a sense of patience, especially when practice feels difficult, you know, especially when progress feels slow, or when there doesn't seem to be any progress at all, it doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere. You know, really, really uh, important, not necessarily easy. So it's interesting. You know, Shanti Deva said that. So wise effort needs, uh, what did he say? Aspiration, confidence, um, joy, and rest. A lot of things are mutually dependent. We'll talk a lot about this on this retreat, but is it, might it be the case that actually I need uh, some effort, some aspiration, and some confidence, as well as some rest, for joy to be present in my life? In other words, do I I need a kind of sense of meaningful challenge? Oftentimes, as human beings, we, we have periods in our life when we're not connected with a sense of meaningful challenge. And I don't know if those are really joyful times. I think there are times where it's easy to lose one's bearings and one's sense of joy. And maybe there's a kind of happiness in feeling stretched a little bit, and feeling, um, as long as it's, again, not interpreted through the inner critic or through the self, there's a kind of happiness in just feeling like, well, I'm, I'm growing because I'm feeling stretched. It all depends on how much the sort of unhealthy sense of self has got hold of it or not. Now, sometimes with this word progress, it's very easy for, especially around practice, to kind of have a black or white sense of it, a black or white image of it. In other words, when am I going to get it? I don't get it, or I I will get it, like it's a it's a, a moment in time, and you either have it or you don't. Okay, Very easy, and again, this might be conscious, and it might be unconscious. And it might be unconsciously present in the way we're relating to the idea of progress. When someone else I know has got it, when will I get it? Um, but wherever we are, unless one's a Totally, uh, what they call perfectly enlightened Buddha, there is always more to develop. There is always uh, a deeper understanding of things. Uh, one one can always grow in one's capacities and what one's cultivating. And even uh, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't significant points and moments in practice when the. Understanding or the realization does take a kind of quantum shift. There are those, and as well as a very gradual movement. But even after uh, a time when it does take a quantum shift, and people talk about stream entry or you know having a direct cognition of emptiness, whatever the language one uses, um, there's still a growing after that. There's absolutely still a growing and a deepening of one's understanding of, in this case, emptiness. And the view uh, gets the view of emptiness, the understanding gets more subtle. It grows. partly it's to do with not swinging so much in terms of emptiness, not not swinging so much between a kind of reifying everything, believing everything to be real, and a kind of nihilism, believing nothing exists. That gets a lot more subtle, that's part of it. So remember, it's a a gradual understanding and and not a black and white sort of on-off switch. And remember that quote, I think it was from the opening talk from Aryadeva, from his 400 verses. Those with little merit do not even entertain questions regarding this Dharma, this teaching of emptiness. Even entertaining a question about it, tears samsara to shreds. He says, when one sees reality, one achieves the supreme abode. But even by seeing the slightest bit, one is better off. Therefore, the wise should always cultivate such wisdom in contemplating phenomena. So I said this as well on the opening talk, really to realize that we're planting seeds here. That's not the only thing we're doing at all, but that's a big part of what we're doing. If you get interested in this, and I hope I hope you all will, but maybe you won't. If you all get interested in this, if you kind of fall in love with this, you will be exploring emptiness for the rest of certainly this lifetime. You, you will be doing that for the rest of this lifetime, absolutely. And so, sure, there can be, and I know for some, there are already some fruits uh, of of this exploration, right now, right here, on the retreat, in your practice. But uh, still, still, a lot of it is fruit, of seeds being planted, and they will come up. And I've seen this with um, the three-week retreat that we did. You know, oftentimes we talk about something, people don't really get it there, about emptiness. And then later, later they start to get it. And as I said, one needs to repeat the ways of working and the insights over and over and over and over. And just, just really cult sow, sow, that, uh, sow those seeds over and over. And remember, I can't remember when I put it out, and maybe it's a question-answer period, but there's three kind of levels of insight. One is the understanding, the intellectual. One is being able to make it work in practice, that so you actually get that sense of freedom in practice to whatever degree. And the other is in the life and grappling with the difficulties and bringing it in over and over and over and all that is kind of tilling tilling the, the, the earth in terms of planting these seeds. So, what happens, again, going into this a little bit, and I'm, I'm aware of the kind of things we're going to start talking about in this retreat, especially as the retreat goes on. What are some of the possible reactions and attitudes when we don't understand, uh, when something in a talk is said that we don't understand? Very common, I'm stupid. Just just immediately the inner critic comes in and the comparing, measuring, judging mind comes in. I, I can't... And again, especially if it's something uh, that involves a little bit of conceptuality or a lot of conceptuality, immediately I'm stupid. And maybe... Old uh, school traumas uh, resurface, and you know, uh, but the comparing, measuring, judging mind comes in, or something else happens. I don't understand something. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And there's a kind of non-engagement. We just kind of, um, we lose interest and we stop grappling and questioning with the thing that we don't understand. Okay, now, that may be a defense, it may be all kinds of things. Third possibility, someone says something, don't understand it. Oh, it's, so, it's so intellectual, mm-hmm. it's so intellectual, that, this can't be right, that can't be right. The truth must be simple, it must be simple and non-conceptual and then we dismiss what's being said. Again, these, these are all talking to people, listening to people. I come across all of these. All, all of these go on. And again, not judging anything here, but just to be aware in that moment of what's happening. Or, uh, again, it's not so much this is intellectual, it's more like the teacher gets judged. He, in this case John or I or some some other teacher, he, she is so intellectual, da 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 da, da and, and a dismissal again. Or... And this is very common. When we don't understand something, or when there's a little bit of thinking involved in it, the heart closes. This is really, really crucial. Why why does the heart need to close when when the mind is grappling with something? Does it? Does it? And if it does, really to be aware of it, and and is there something one can do to keep it open? Actually, it's possible that this and this are open at the same time. The head and the heart are open at the same time. And again, of course, one can be inspired when one doesn't understand something. It's just like we sense the the, the perfume, the whisper, the promise of something, the intimation of something, and I want to know that. We, we, We sense the possibility and there's inspiration. And there's this will, this seeking to understand. It's beautiful, I want to understand. Another very wholesome and skillful response is, I don't understand right now, but I'm going to file it for later. Okay, and that later might be uh, hours after the talk's done, and you ponder through it. And what did what was that? Let me go through that again. It may be days later, months later, years later, but a sense of not dismissing it, really, really filing it for later. So some stuff in the Dharma is really, really deep, really, really subtle, and really, really difficult to understand. It's just. There's no two ways around that. The Buddha was really in two minds about whether to teach or not. So here was a guy who was five minutes after he was completely free of all suffering, wanted to teach, and then thought, what if people don't, people, people this is really hard to understand, what if people don't understand? And then said, a guy free of suffering said, if they don't understand, it will be wearying and vexing for me. S- strange... Attitude for someone who's completely free of suffering. <laughs> something, something about how difficult the teachings of emptiness and dependent arising are to actually uh, understand and, and communicate. So it's not that we get it all at once. We we don't get it all at once. And sometimes you hear you hear a lot of stories, and there's a lot of hype about getting it at once. When anything in life happens at once, it's very dramatic, it makes a big impact. You know, the day that those two planes hit the World Trade Center, how many children died of malnourishment and diarrhoea, etc., in the world? Mm-hmm. Just children, more people than died in the terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. But because it's spread out and over time, it's like something in the consciousness of suddenness Grasps, grasp the um, the attention in a very dramatic way. Same with spirituality and someone says, you know, I was just, just hanging out and then suddenly, boom, and now everything's different. It's really dramatic versus someone saying, you yeah, know, well, I just kind of trudged along and I did it and little <laughs> by little. And, and, you know, it's not dramatic. We're not interested. P- personalities are different with this. But there's something about suddenness that the mind latches onto and gets kind of Obsessed by it's glaring, it's bright, it's like flashing neon. With it being difficult and taking time, etc., we will feel uncomfortable at times. And I said this in the opening talk. There's a lovely quote from Sakya Pandita, one of the great Tibetan teachers Wise people suffer while they learn. <laughs> wise people suffer while they learn if you want to be comfortable forget about becoming wise (laughs) 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 he goes on to say people who are attached to small pleasures don't get big ones people who are attached to small pleasures don't get big ones that applies to a lot of stuff but there's a lot in that you know so Sometimes, if we're really honest, you know, and probably most of you have listened to many, many Dharma talks in your life up to now. Sometimes, if one is honest, one notices that um, we kind of like it when a Dharma talk says something that we already know. (laughs) And for some reason we want that. (laughs) And we enjoy that. Now, sometimes it's just the ego of wanting to feel like, I know, I know. (laughs) I remember Thokni Rinpoche saying, um, I can't remember his exact words, but it was something like, are you judging a talk as good or bad based on whether it basically agrees with your views and predispositions and what you've already decided is right? And that's what makes a good talk, (laughs) that it fits in nicely with your, you know... This is, this is really, really important. I mean, it's funny, it is funny, but it's, it's actually really important too. Or again, sometimes it's the inner critic, and it's that the inner critic is so you know, beleaguered and battered by feeling like, I don't understand, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, that when someone actually says something, that we do understand, and we say, I know that, hey, I'm not, feeling, I'm not feeling crappy. And there's a kind of relief from that, oh, I get it, it's not that I don't know. But, you know, sometimes when we feel uncomfortable, it's actually that we're being stretched, that we're learning, that uh, we're growing, uh, that we are being challenged. So there's there's something about that. Now, in these teachings of emptiness, I can't remember if I've said this uh, before, but there is, we can talk about... a sort of spe- a continuum or a depth, a spectrum of depth of understanding. In other words, you can understand it at this level and deeper and deeper and deeper. We can really, really talk about that. And that's quite commonly agreed upon with people who spend a lot of time work- working in, in this area. And again, what's the attitude to the fact of this spectrum of depth of understanding? And I could, as as I've talked I could feel overwhelmed by that. Well, I understand at this level, apparently that's not the real, you know, apparently that's not deep enough. I could get impatient. I could get self-critical. I could be confused by all, you know. None of those are helpful. Or I could go to the other extreme, and this is, in a way, even worse because it's more insidious. I could... Get to a certain understanding a certain depth, and stop looking further. I stop my looking further into this question of what it really means that things are empty. Uh, I stop the questioning the practice that I'm going to introduce on Monday um, is a very very popular practice at the moment in the Dharma world in all kinds of different traditions uh, it's probably one of the I don't know it's probably one of the most popular Ways of going about things, and the most popular kind of understanding of emptiness. um, It's hard to, but but it's not it's not the full it's not the full Monty. It's not the full uh, depth of it. Um, Or again, a person who perhaps comes from uh, a a strict Theravada background, and and the idea is that it's just that you have to just understand that there is no personal. Uh, inherently existing self, just the emptiness of this self and the emptiness of other phenomena is kind of not relevant. Or one has an experience of something inside and it seems to fit what one pe- what people talk about when they say Buddha nature, etc. Um, certain experiences that can happen in meditation that can open up that are very beautiful and very rewarding and very freeing, very freeing, but not quite the whole journey yet. Uh, and can even find for those different experiences a lot of support in different texts and different teachings and teachers, etc. But it's more like it's it's something about keeping the questioning, keeping the integrity alive. Um, So uh, there is this spectrum, and it's actually really, really fine to kind of station oneself at a certain plateau for a while. That's actually really fine and probably really necessary for most people. And I remember my, one of my teachers, Ajahn Jeff, sa- said to me, You know, slow down, Rob, slow down. You've got to get attached to these different states. You've got to get attached. You know, spend some time in this or that and, and really get attached there. We'll, we'll talk more about this. but So it's really okay to station yourself at a certain level. And a certain uh, understanding of emptiness is really, really fine. Just know that there is further to go. If you know, if you're not completely at the depth yet, and that's partly why there is so much on this course. So, to, I want you a little bit. We want you a little bit to understand the, the depth of what's possible. In the Zogchen tradition, they have a lovely, lovely phrase. It's so useful over and over uh, in practice, and it says. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. In other words, as practitioners, we do open up to certain experiences and certain understandings of things. And it's saying, trust that. Absolutely trust that. But keep refining your view. In other words, keep, keep questioning it. Keep probing it. Is this the final arriving point? So there are some... Ways of understanding emptiness in the world right now that are, as I said, very popular, and it's all sometimes it's almost impossible to budge someone from that. There's just a kind of refusal to keep questioning. Partly it's actually to do with a little bit what I said before because to question that level which feels so beautiful and so open and so lovely, to actually question that may mean getting a little bit picky, getting a little bit conceptual, getting a little bit kind of pedantic uh, or complex even. And so sometimes teachings may sound that way, that like they're a bit picky or complex or whatever, pedantic. But if we are practicing, if a person is practicing and inquiring with, with re- really with care and integrity, Um, those kind of subtleties that may seem picky at first actually become really, really, really important. They're not just like intellectual kind of curiosities for the scholars or something. They actually become really important. And a person of integrity will actually find themselves at times yearning for a kind of clarity about directional ways to practice or subtle distinctions of understanding, actually really yearning for that because it is really important. Okay, so all that was about attitudes in general, but we can also talk about the the ways our attitudes shift and our relationship with practice shifts in the moment, and and it does. It's it's moving all the time, our relationship with practice. And this is something we want to keep an eye on. So in a way, uh, a skillful practitioner has one eye on the relationship with practice all the time, meaning right now in this moment what is my relationship to practice am i too tight am i too pushy am i have i lost interest am i not caring am i criticizing myself all all this is is kind of one is conscious of that in, in the background of awareness in an ongoing way and as i said and i will repeat it again i know i've said it before Um, really important in terms of taking care of the relationship with practice, to nourish a sense of joy, a sort of base level of happiness as much as possible. To nourish that sense of warmth, of juiciness. Remember I said in the opening talk, you guys are responsible for the juiciness here. Okay? reflecting on gratitude and appreciation, really taking care of those qualities. They're, they're a lot more important than most people tend to think. Sense of beauty. Is that—is that coming into the sense of things? Is that coming into the days here? Sense of beauty in different ways? Devotion. Now that means very different things to different people, but is a sense of devotion coming in? What would that mean? And I let it mean whatever it means to you. Kindness to oneself—that's really, really crucial. Love of the Dharma, love of a practice, love of teachings, and again, the, the the importance of a sense of possibility. So, without a sense of possibility, everything's just going to crack up and dry up sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later. If I don't really have of a sense of real possibility for myself, a little old me, that I can actually do something. And all those qualities, you know, how do we nourish them? This is, this is an ongoing part of the art of being on retreat, especially in just practicing in one's life. But partly they're nourished by the silence, in the silence, you know, through the silence, listening to the embrace of silence. Um, by a sense of simplicity. So as much as some of the teachings are quite complex, there can be a real sense of simplicity running through the days, beautiful sense of simplicity. Sometimes just a simple sense of presence, just back to humble old mindfulness and just simply being present. Curiosity. When we're engaged with curiosity, it's very, very nourishing. And again, that sense of possibility. What we see as practitioners is that our interest in practice goes up and down all the time. And if you track this over a day, it's actually impossible to, to maintain a kind of passionate, <coughs> connected interest in, with practice through you know, however many hours you're awake for during the day. It's not possible. It's going to go up and down. and It goes up with the biorhythms and the bodily energy and all, all, all different factors. The important thing is responsiveness, that we're actually responding to the currents and the, and the movements of interest and aspiration and uh, whatever else. Sometimes when we don't feel interested, it's actually necessary to. how to put this? Re, re-stoke up, reignite the conviction that. It's actually ignorance that leads to suffering. Okay, so sometimes we're on retreat and we just kind of get used to it. But something happens, and this or that goes is a little bit difficult, whatever. Uh, or in our life, and we see the problem in the thing, and we don't see the problem in the delusion. So actually, understanding that the suffering comes in our life through not understanding emptiness—that's the bottom line reason why we suffer, and you know, it's very easy to kind of nod our heads at that and say, yeah, 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 of course, right, obvious. But when it comes down to actually some suffering there, that's at the bottom of why we're suffering. Okay? And sometimes when when we do lose interest in practice, actually to remind oneself, I need to understand emptiness, because if I don't, or to the degree that I don't, I suffer. It's just that simple. And not only that, I put out things into the world which uh, probably uh, cause other people to suffer. And I'm not as able to help other suffering beings as I would be if I understood emptiness more deeply. And and with all that, and and kind of in all that, is it possible to keep a sense of freshness and aliveness in the practice over over the days here, and and in one's life outside of retreat? So freshness and aliveness, freshness and aliveness, I think one of the biggest Supports, for that sense, is actually taking risks, taking risks in our practice and around our practice. So for example, sitting longer, or um, you know, it can be all kinds of risks in relationship to food, in relationship to sitting, in relationship to walking practice, whatever it is, or staying up late at night to practice getting up early to practice. These are all risks. It's very easy for the heart to kind of get a little bit boxed in. By this is what time I go to bed because this is how much sleep I need. And, and, and there's actually fear underlying. It's just a, a not really conscious strain, current of fear uh, running underneath it. And what that does is it constricts the heart. The heart is, is actually boxed in by that f- unconscious fear. Around things like sleep and food, just really mundane things, we don't even notice it. The heart is actually it actually closes the heart funnily enough. It closes the heart and can make the practice feel stale, can make the practice feel stale. So I don't know what that means to you. you. Again, you have to translate a lot of this for yourself. What does it mean to take risks? What would it mean to take risks? Small risks, little risks. What would that mean? What would it mean to shake up the habits? Again, not just on the retreat, but in one's life. What does it mean to shake up the habits? to, to, To be doing that in order to shake up the heart and shake up the energies. And to be willing to play one's edges, to play at one's edges. So every day, whether it's on retreat or off retreat, there are actually a thousand small little choices that can kind of go either way in terms of closing the heart back into its little area of security or opening it that can actually kind of stifle a sense of energy coming into the being or can actually stimulate and open up the flow of energy. Thousands of tiny little choices every day. And what are the mental and physical habits that um, bring energy and the ones that kind of stifle it? I mean, offertory. You see a lot around food, around TV, or exercise, or speech, or the general intentions in little moments in one's life. All this actually is really, really crucial. It's really, really crucial. It's not. I don't know what to say. It's it's again to play with, to have an not to bring an attitude of judgment to this, but an attitude of playfulness, and experimentation, and kind of just to see what's possible. somewhere, and I can't remember where it is, I think it's in one of the Tibetan traditions, Uh, they talk about different kinds of effort, and there's the effort of non-inferiority, the type of effort, what that actually means is not getting discouraged by the kind of thought like, how could someone like me possibly do something like this? How could little old me do this? actually taking care with that, taking care with that, and that non-feeling of inferiority allows effort. It allows effort. There's also what's called the effort of irreversibility, which is an interesting one. It's when circumstances, uh, conditions, can't divert you from um, effort in, in meditation or from the emptiness meditation or, or effort, effort in life uh, towards practice. And that, that's why I was just saying, in terms of, practicing with one's difficulties and practicing at one's edges, okay? It's so easy to hear this and much more difficult to even just be checking that we're, you know, be checking in in a live way that it's really happening in our life. It's very easy when conditions are just like this or like that, that we don't actually view it as practice. We we stop, I've said this before, I know, but uh, it's important. And there's also what's called the effort of application, which is enjoying practice and enjoying engaging in practice, even even when it feels difficult and something doesn't feel good. There actually can be something that enjoys that, something that enjoys the way we're relating to the difficulty. So even with mindfulness, you might have had a sense of this. You can have a sense of some, there's some sadness or grief or pain, and yet, the mindful space around it feels—it um, feels good to be in connected, to be in connection with the difficulty. It feels like what we're bringing to it with the mindfulness actually eases it, actually helps it. So it can be something, even when there's a difficulty, that feels good uh, to, to practice with what's difficult. In a way, all those kind of make us. A, a, I don't know what the word is. They kind of make us a you know, a kind of die hard practitioner. They 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 build some uh um, <laughs> you know, they give you some muscle. They give you some muscle. I just want to throw out a few, these are little kind of tidbits now about working with, 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 with balancing practice. I came across an interesting passage of the Buddha the other day, talking about balancing samadhi with um, insight practice, which we've already talked about, and with uplifting the energy. Uplifting. So these three things need to be balanced. Uplifting the energy means uh, taking care of this sense of beauty, of nourishment, of joy, of wonder, etc., as much as possible, of appreciation, gratitude. That's uplifting the heart and the energy. So these three things are actually necessary ingredients uh, for one who wants awakening. And again, to see where is the balance drifting... Am I drifting just into the samadhi? Because as the Buddha says in the same passage, if I do, it just goes towards a kind of laziness in terms of investigation. I just kind of like sitting there in this sort of pleasant fog of samadhi, and, um, and I don't probe so much. If I'm just probing with not enough samadhi, we've talked about this, it can be agitating and it doesn't go so deep. If I'm just walking around Guy House in a state of... The attitude at the flowers and the you know the over abundant kindness of the the managers and and um, whatever um, then uh, that will lead towards restlessness okay so think about these three qualities that they're actually really necessary ingredients really really necessary okay now a couple of people said, and I think it was the last question and answer that I did, uh, a little bit of coldness or distance coming in. And again, this this all has to do with balancing the practice and balancing our relationship with practice. So if that's the case, um, when one's contemplating three characteristics, it feels like things are a bit distant or a bit not, not really warm, a bit cold. Um, again, trust the samadhi. And deepening in the samadhi will bring a warmth. Trust the metta practice, because that also brings a warmth and, and a connection. But it's also possible, I remembered uh, many years ago an interaction I had with my teacher when I actually said the same thing uh, many, many years ago. And she just said, just keep doing, just keep doing the practice you're doing towards the sense of coldness distance. In other words, regard that too as not-self, or regard uh, you know, relax the relationship with that. So keep keep going, because in a way that's just another phenomenon. You understand? It's just another phenomenon. So, just to pull a few points out, which I've already said. Most people need to trust the samadhi. Most people, uh, it's really good to trust the metta. Really trust its place in what we're doing here. Most people... But don't get into this, this is all repeat now, but it's worth it. Don't get into this um, thing where all the practices kind of mesh into one. It's Samadhi and it's Metta and it's the three characteristics and it's mindfulness, kind of all, kind of one thing. Uh, It won't be that helpful in that respect, but see if you can have a real clarity of approach. And as I said, how specific can you be about noticing what happens, because that will be important. Okay, the last piece, a little piece. Um, have you noticed, either with samadhi or metta practice, or with the three characteristics practice, that oftentimes, when you actually stop meditating, or after you've kind of zoned out and kind of got lost on a track of thought, after you've stopped, or when you come back after being lost, it actually seems to go deeper. Has anyone noticed that? Not, no, no, not always, definitely not always. Um, but sometimes that happens and one notices it and it could be, it could be an indication that one's gripping the practice a little bit too tight, that the relationship is a bit too tight. Because you see, by actually one's luc- when one's... Lost it for a bit and gone off on a you know thought for a few seconds or whatever. In that time, you've actually loosened it. When I've been doing formal meditation, someone rings the bell, it's finished. I loosen it by getting up to sitting. And if I suddenly stop meditating, and then it's suddenly like, oh wow, everything seems like it's not me or mine. You know, it's very clear. Or when I come back from uh, getting lost, the samadhi seems like, oh, it just got a little bit deeper, or the meta feels a little more full, or whatever. Could be an indication that the it's just a little bit too tight. You understand? Not really. No. Um, I don't understand. How, I, th- I thought you were going to say, if you come back and it's a bit deeper, it sounds like it's a good thing, not it's too tight. I don't no, uh, it yeah. is. It is a good thing, but it might be saying that. I mean, and you would go with that depth, but it might be saying that in In the time up to that, before you lost it, it might be a bit tight, and that's why you had to kind of relax it a little bit oh. to get that sense of deepening I'm mm-hmm. saying so I know very, very little about sailing, but I have a sense that meditation is just like or sailing is just like meditation. <laughs> Sometimes in the summer and the metta practice, you really get the sense that it's as if the wind catches the sail. It's as if some, something's full and you're kind of riding a current. So if you're doing the metta practice and you're using the phrases, for instance, um, you might get the sense with one phrase, like, may you be peaceful or happy. It's, it's almost as if just that phrase takes on a bit of resonance. And then you want to ride that current, ride that little bit. You feel it in the body, and it's almost like it can fill out. And just ride that a little bit. You know, Go on that uh, wave. Surf that wave. Um, so we want to be sensitive to that. When it feels like the wind has, has caught the sail, and actually respond to it. In a way, the whole of the practice, actually responding to conditions inner and outer at, at, that exist at any time, and responding to them, and at the same time keeping the sense of long-term direction and, and goal. So like us, you know, a sailing boat might go like this, might tack, and responding to the conditions, the wind and the currents in the water, etc., I have a sense of where I want to go, and there's a lot about that responsiveness and sensitivity that's a big part of the art of practice. Okay, so that's all I wanted to say tonight. Um, As I said, there's a lot in there that will maybe feel more applicable as we go on, I don't know. But uh, hopefully you can keep some of that in mind as we go, because it probably will be important. Thank you for listening.